Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. G'day Space Junkies, welcome back to the Space Junk Pod, where today we're hanging out with Associate Professor Alice Gorman. Alice, who tweets as Dr. Space Junk, is an internationally recognised leader in the emerging field of space archaeology. Closer to home, Alice has worked extensively in Indigenous heritage management, providing advice for the mining industry, urban development, government departments, local councils and native title groups in New South Wales, Western Australia, South Australia and Queensland. She is also a specialist in stone tool analysis and the Aboriginal use of bottle glass after European settlement. Alice and I got together over Zoom to record this podcast episode. We talk about how Alice became an archaeologist, discuss unconscious bias, and learn about the time Alice has spent working on mining sites as a heritage consultant. But before we begin, a quick reminder that if you haven't already jumped over to YouTube to check out my video interviews, you should definitely do so because there's loads of content over there on all sorts of interesting topics that I haven't been able to squeeze into our regular programming. Also, a reminder that you can sponsor the podcast over at www.patreon.com slash thespacejunkpod. That's all from me. Enjoy this episode. Part two of this discussion will be up next week. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Welcome to Space Junk. I'm your host, Annie Hammer, and I am here with the fabulous Dr. Space Junk, or as you may know her, Alice Gorman. Dr. Space Junk is the author of the book, Dr. Space Junk versus the Universe, which was recently shortlisted for the New South Wales Premier's Literary Award. Alice, it is so nice to talk to you. How are you? Hi, Annie. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I do love that I'm Dr. Space Junk and I'm talking to you as the host of the Space Junk podcast. It does seem outrageous that you haven't been on this podcast previously. And I have to apologise on behalf (laughs) of myself and apologise to my listeners. I would have had Alice on this podcast long ago, but for the fact that I was enormously intimidated by how awesome she was. And I felt that I couldn't ask her to be on the podcast until it had some sort of momentum and was sort of like, I felt like it was good enough to warrant having her on the podcast. (laughs) And in doing that, I have denied everyone the opportunity of hearing from you, Alice, for far too long. So thank you for agreeing to finally be on it. And I'm sorry. I cannot believe that you would ever have thought I was in any way intimidating. Well, now that I know you, I know that you're not intimidating, but in terms of your achievements, you are incredibly intimidating. And I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself for our listeners and, uh, and share some of those intimidating attributes. No, I, I share your, your expertise and, and what it is you do. Well, so I'm a space archaeologist, basically. In my day-to-day job, I'm an academic at Flinders University. I teach in an archaeology, history and geography program, which means that I'm usually 
teaching staff about cultural heritage management and Australian archaeology, but my research area is about space. So I apply archaeological theories and methods to all of the material culture that is associated with space exploration. And this is on the Earth, in orbit, hence the interest in space junk, and planetary landing sites and deep space probes as well. What does it mean to say material culture? That's a good question, because it's a, it's a straightforward term for archaeologists, but maybe doesn't immediately become comprehensible to, to non-archaeologists. So, so one of the things archaeologists do is look at how humans interact with objects or artefacts and the physical environment, whether that's a house or a field or a mountain range. So it's basically about how humans impact the world around them and in turn have their lives impacted by the objects that they use and the places that they live. So the material culture part, you could say, first of all, that there are cultures that are based around certain kinds of material. So you might say Australia would be characterised by finding a jar of Vegemite in every pantry cupboard, and you would not necessarily expect to find that in the US. So that's an example of how material culture uh, shapes people's behavior and expectations, I guess. So we're looking at those objects and how it is that they create distinct patterns of adaptation or behavior that characterize certain time periods, certain geographic areas, certain communities. And I guess you could say space is all of those things. It's a very distinct geographic area it involves very particular communities. The obvious example here is, is astronaut communities, whether they've actually gone into space or have simply trained as an astronaut. And it involves very distinct material culture of the kind that we would normally recognize, sort of rockets and satellite dishes and lunar landing sites are all things we would immediately recognize as space material culture but it's also much broader than that. So I suppose one of the things I'm really interested in, uh, okay, and I'm really sorry, Annie, I'm gonna have to mention this. One of my research obsessions is the cable tie. So, you know, that little skinny strap of plastic that you can buy for $2, a hundred for $2 in, in the reject shop or something like that. Sorry, that was not an endorsement. And they're everywhere in people's lives. So, you know, they're in the kitchen drawer, they're in the garage, they're, in the boot of the car and, and this little mass-produced disposable bit of plastic is actually an artifact that was developed for aerospace industry at the beginning of the space age. So it spans people's everyday lives and into specialist uses like little blue radiation hardened cable ties for use on the International Space Station. So that's space archaeology too, and that's material culture. That is really interesting. Um, cable ties are something that, yeah, as you say, they're sort of everywhere, ubiquitous in our lives. And um, I actually 
had a class a while ago, you know, I do Krav Maga and I had a class a while ago that was how to get out of cable ties. Should you find yourself really? trapped by them? Yes, it's very interesting. I might have to do a video, uh, a special video edition on my Patreon of how to escape from cable ties and we'll do it as a sort of a space junk special. Um, I want to see that. Yeah, because there's, there's a technique to it. But um, speaking of cable ties, I wanted to ask you a bit about archaeology in general. So I used to be, uh, and still am, a massive fan of those archaeology shows on TV. The ones like Time Team, where, you know, there's sort of a, an English man with a northern English accent with a big beard stomping around in a muddy field wearing gumboots and talking to another sort of similarly bedraggled looking Englishman. And it's always raining. And they're digging these muddy trenches. And every now and then they find a piece of pottery, a, a shard, and they sort of hold it aloft triumphantly and say, this piece of pottery was the centerpiece of a thriving metropolis. And then suddenly on the screen, the animation takes over and they've got these columns going up and it's the center of a big town square. And there's a, you know, a Roman Colosseum <clears throat> next door. And the whole thing seems to be kind of constructed from this little piece of pottery, which, from the viewer's perspective, it's immensely exciting. But I know that it is possible to tell a lot from a civilization, from its material culture, whether it be cable tie fragments or bits of pottery. But can you really, on the basis of a, a fragment of pottery, know that much about what used to be there? I guess from an archaeologist's perspective, there's... I mean, one of the things we want to do with all of this material culture is, is tell stories about human lives and stories about the past, particularly ones that demonstrate just how diverse human material adaptations are. Because otherwise we just think our little narrow world at the moment is all that humans are capable of. And, and if the past shows us anything, it's, it's that there were multitudes of social forms and artifact types and styles and technologies that that we don't have around today it's like biodiversity only cultural diversity so what we do with that little scrap of pottery or in my case it would have been a little stone tool is we use all of the evidence that we have to tell those stories but mm. there's there's a limit to that so something i guess we're trained to do as archaeologists is to know how much of that story is supported by the evidence and when you start to veer into speculation and there's nothing wrong with speculation just mm. so long as it's where that line is so let's just take a, a stone tool of the kind i might have once been excavating in the hunter valley region of new south wales mm. there's a very particular artifact type called a backed artifact which is often made of quite beautiful stone, very fine-grained, very glossy, uh, often with quite beautiful colours. And it's gone through a, a two or three stage process of manufacture. So I could pull that out of the ground and time team wise, then construct a story about what was going on, which may not involve fancy animations, but it would be, okay, what is this made out of? It's made out of silcrete. Silcrete is a stone that is formed in a particular geological uh, set of conditions. 
it has all the right characteristics to make a stone tool, uh, but it's not found everywhere. It's found in a particular place. So where is the nearest source of this beautiful silkrete? Well, it's 100 kilometres away, hypothetically. So already we can say um, this, this artefact was made from material that comes 100 kilometres away, but discarded right here. So we know something about the territory size and the, the travel patterns of this particular group of Aboriginal people. And let's just say, hypothetically, this is around 5,000 years ago which is when these artefacts were being made. Mm. Um, and, and what was it used for is the next question. So we know from uh, studies using microscopes on stone tool edges that these backed artefacts were sometimes used hafted into spear shafts. Sometimes they were used to cut and process vegetables. So we might put this under the microscope and we might from that be able to say something about who was doing the activity. So mm. not always, but mostly in many Aboriginal societies in the present and probably in the past, it was the blokes who did the hunting or they did the high profile hunting. Whereas the women often did the regular going after small animals to provision the family. But if we find vegetable residues on that edge, then it is more likely that women were doing that work. So on that one artifact, we can start to build a story about division of labor in that society. Mm. So how and when, and what were the social exchanges and what else they were doing and all of that, we would need more evidence to figure that out. And usually we have hundreds and hundreds of these artifacts. We don't just have one. But on the basis of that kind of evidence, we, we can start to say, well, here is a story that likely resulted in this artefact being discarded at this location in the landscape at this time. So the idea is that you would do the same with space artefacts, except in this instance, we're lucky because we do actually have in a lot of cases, we have all of the documents that went with different artefacts. When I say all of the documents, it is mm. actually really surprising how much is missing from that archival record. Really, really surprising just how much we've lost. And we can talk to people as well. And that's a great source of information until you remember that people often have very poor memories and they will have told their own stories about the past. And the thing that's really interesting about archaeology is that where documents and people's memories fail, the actual object itself can often tell you what really happened. So I guess in that sense, it's a really interesting kind of, you know, my, the cable ties are an equivalent of a stone tool that I found when I was walking across the landscape of the Hunter Valley. Or if I'm at a site like the Woomera rocket launch range, you know, finding a particular kind of electrical valve or something like that. So, so often there are these little tiny things. No one will have thought to write anything about them, how they were used, what their significance was in the technology, because they're just routine things. They're just so everyday that you don't necessarily even notice them. But when you find them as an object and use that to construct a story, 
then you can find out things that just aren't recorded or present anywhere else. Mm. So in a way then you're telling the untold stories, the stories that have been forgotten or maybe were never thought worthy of being remembered by being a bit of a detective and seeing what evidence you can find in the, the physical remains of what we've done in the past. Yeah, I guess so. And, you know, this stuff, a lot of space stuff, it's, it's relatively recent, really. Mm. It's all happened within the last 70 years. But there is still, there is so much we, we, we don't know. I guess you get perspective as well, even with recent things. So there's a, a process called making the familiar unfamiliar, which is part of the archaeology of these contemporary recent things. And it's the idea that you don't notice things just because they're so interwoven with your everyday life. Not that, you know, a rocket range is interwoven with our everyday lives necessarily, but, but when you use the process of saying, um, well, you know, what is this really? What does it mean? Sometimes we ask questions like, how did this object interact with the human body? Like, could hands fit around it? If you were standing next to it, would it be towering over you? Would you feel smaller or larger than it? Could you see all of it at once? So there's also something about these objects telling us something about the physical experience of being in a place or, or carrying out work on constructing or maintaining some kind of high-tech object. And mm. these are all parts of the experience as well that archaeology can illuminate. It would require a certain sort of very developed empathy, I think, to think in those terms and to be able to make the familiar unfamiliar and then be able to imagine your way yeah, to, a, to another, a new familiarity. I think that's absolutely fascinating. I, in sociology of science, um, historically, we had the Strong Program, which was a program that uh, Bruno Latour and, and others kind of popularized and the idea was what would happen if you went into the labs and you just imagined that you were an alien who had never seen science being done and didn't mm -hmm. understand what it was what would you observe if you were to apply the scientific perspective to science itself um, and I think the results were somewhat mixed I think you know a lot of really good work came out of that on the other hand, I think that when you remove the humanity, you also remove a lot of interpretation. And so some of the conclusions that were reached about, you know, labs being places where people took things in and out of fridges and wrote things on pieces of paper <laughs> might not be the most useful conclusions. But it's a very interesting way of reimagining who we are and and kind of taking a moment to step outside what we do automatically and mm -hmm. question that, uh, which I think is really interesting. Alice, how did you become an archaeologist? Were you a, a kid who was super into history? Were you just sort of digging in the garden a lot as a kid? What, what drew you to archaeology? It's a sort of a two-pronged story, I guess. So I grew up on a farm in southern New South Wales. And something that was a really important part of my childhood was seeing the night sky. 
and I used to go outside and, you know, gaze up at the Milky Way a lot and just feel like all of the answers to the reasons for human life were somehow caught up in understanding the universe. But I don't know if I should be embarrassed to admit this or not. I also used to read encyclopedias. <laughs> and in, um, in one of them, there was a whole section on sort of, there was paleontology and then there was archaeology. And I kind of got stuck in the, I went through my dinosaur phase too, as all kids do, but I kind of got stuck in the archaeology. And to me, it was the same set of questions. So if I wanted to, to know the meaning of life, it was either going to be in the stars or in the dirt where we could examine the deep past of human existence and, and try and figure out, you know, what we're doing here on this planet. So there were kind of two sides of the same coin for me. And I did, my mother used to buy me archaeology books and I did do a little bit of digging around in the backyard, you know, and, and on a farm, you do tend to find things in the soil all the time. Um, but I, you do really need guidance. Like I would dig stuff up and just have no idea what to do with it because contrary to popular belief, archaeology isn't just digging stuff up. But I guess the path to the path to so I was passionate about this. Like I really wanted to be an archaeologist, mm. but I also wanted to be an astrophysicist or an astronomer. So I made all my choices throughout my school career, sort of aimed at that goal. And it turned out when I got to year twelve in New South Wales, I didn't get a brilliant mark in physics. So, you know, I did okay, but it just wasn't a, a brilliant mark. It was sort of quite at odds with the rest of my record. And, like, no one ever said to me, you cannot be an astrophysicist. But there was just a general sort of, well, you know, you were good at this other stuff, so maybe you should go down this path. And I wanted to be an archaeologist, and, and I should also point out that archaeology requires a lot of science. It's not just history and humanities stuff. Mm. And I wanted to do it, but I always felt, I felt sad that I didn't have the choice. I didn't have the choice to go on and be an astrophysicist. Maybe I'd never have done that anyway. I don't know. But mm. I kind of felt like the choice had been removed from, from me. Anyway, so, you know, years pass. I was um, a professional archaeologist for quite a while. Then I had this mind-blowing experience one day so this is some years after I had started working in space and I was quite involved in the space community and one day uh, there was an event out at the Canberra Deep Space Communications Complex Tidbinbilla and I was driving out there with one of my colleagues from the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics and he asked me a really interesting question that struck me so much because no one had ever asked it before. And he said, Alice, I don't get why, if you're so into space, you didn't do a degree in aerospace engineering or astrophysics or something like that. And I thought, isn't that interesting? This reveals an assumption on the part of almost everyone <laughs> that I'd ever met in the space community that the, there's no 
there's no difficulty for for a woman in that industry to be working in the kind of social sciences humanities field is the expectation so it's unusual to be in fact there are 16 percent of the space industry australia is women so there's nothing at all remarkable about the fact that I had not done this. And I myself didn't question this until he asked me that question. So that was the first sort of head spinner. Mm. I didn't do that. But, um, and then, he, then I said, well, okay. I thought it doesn't matter anymore. I can tell him. I said, well, the reason is I, I just didn't do very well at physics. And, and he said, and the, his next, oh, my God, when I think about this man, his next question was, he said, did you fail physics? And for the first time since I had left high school, I thought, I didn't fail physics. I passed physics. And I didn't just pass it by a whisker. I passed it reasonably. It wasn't brilliant, but I passed it quite well. And then he said, what mark did you get? And this is the only mark I remember from HSC because that's just so irrelevant to everyone's lives after a certain period. But I remember this mark. So I said to him, well, I got 62. And this man, an astrophysicist with a PhD said to me, do you know, that's the same mark I got. And I just thought, I just thought this is this thing which I'm sure your listeners are very familiar with, that men are allowed to be regular or average and women have to be brilliant. They just can't be mediocre too. So it just, you know, made me ponder the way these things work out, I guess. So, yeah, I ended up being an archaeologist, but I guess the good part of that story is I did end up back in the space world. And then, Alice, when you became an archaeologist, you went and worked in um, the Hunter Valley, as you mentioned, on prospective coal mining projects as a heritage consultant. What was that job like? Who were you working for? Well, this was an interesting period. So this was after I finished my undergraduate degree which was, oh gosh, I don't know, 1987 or something like that. And I moved to Sydney and in those days there were a very small number of of heritage consultants and there were um, at at the senior level and there were a whole bunch of us sort of junior ones who would move from project to project. Mm. And these projects could be, there could be uh, the construction of of power lines or roads or urban subdivision, uh, or in there was a huge amount of mining and the Hunter Valley being the centre of coal production um, in New South Wales, we spent a lot of time uh, up Mm. there. And it's it's a really interesting process. So I'm actually... I'm actually quite fond of mine sites. Like I love the big trucks, the massive two-storey trucks. So I used to watch them. Um, so a lot of the, these are open-cut coal mines um, a lot of the time in the Hunter Valley. And I'd watch them driving down into the pit and think, well, look, you know, if my archaeology career 
burns out, then I'm going to train to become one of those truck drivers. Like they're amazing. And I'm also quite interested in drilling. I love drilling rigs. And it was probably quite illegal, but every now and then one of the drillers would let us up onto the rig and I would, you know, watch the, the, the drill pit go down. Um, so that part of it, I actually, I'm not saying that I'm a fan of ripping the environment apart or a fan of coal. I'm just saying I really like the technology um, mm. and the whole operation of, of, of an open cut mine. So basically every state in Australia has legislation to protect Aboriginal heritage. And our job frequently as part of an environmental impact study was to go in ahead of mining operations and assess the Aboriginal heritage sites, which we did with members of the relevant traditional owner group out with us at the same time. Mm. We would assess those sites and make recommendations to the coal mining company about what they could and couldn't destroy. And there's a very common perception people have that if, if an Aboriginal community says, oh, this is a sacred site, then they shut the project down. And I'm here to tell you that the number of times that has actually happened, you could probably count on the fingers of your hand. So we always knew that some of these extraordinary places would just be destroyed because mm. in the case of the dispute, the minister would always take the side of the coal mine. So our job was to try and, and balance all of this. So we wanted to get a good outcome for the traditional owner community. Mm. So that meant sometimes we were thinking, okay, well, what can we let go in order to keep this other place? And we wanted to make sure that they felt fully involved in the decision-making process, which is always a very difficult thing because in terms of how an operation like a coal mine runs, you can bet that traditional owner concerns are always at the bottom of the heap. And we didn't want to be, so our job was not to stop the mine and our job was not to be partisan. Our job was to present the evidence about the significance of the heritage places that we found to make recommendations to mitigate the impacts on them by the coal mine. And if there was no way around destruction of that place, which there would, there often would not be if it was literally going to be blasted up into another pit or another section of the pit, then we would have to maybe say, we'll salvage the site before it gets destroyed or we'll find some other way to kind of, not let that heritage be completely destroyed. So it was really about sort of balancing all of these competing interests. And it was done within the framework of the legislation. So we knew that legislation off by heart. And you'd often be out in the field and you'd have like contractors who were operating earth moving machinery, site supervisors and foremen. You'd have to be making decisions that could potentially cost the mining company a lot of money if you mm. said you really cannot go here. But we were dealing with people who are much lower down in the chain. So you could have quite interesting discussions, let's say, with some of these people when, when you're, you're, there are, you know, a civil engineer who is just doing their job out on site and you have to say to them, listen, mate, you have to stop work. 
at this point right now because we have to investigate this further. So we were kind of the meat in the sandwich, I guess, mm. um, between what the traditional owners needed. And again, I, I guess a lot of people have a misconception that uh, traditional owners are not passionate about their heritage and are involved in these things just to, you know, earn some money or be difficult. I don't know. So, but what we had often were elders and young people who sometimes, because some of these coal mining leases had formerly been private land, were getting to be on their country sometimes for the first time because they hadn't been allowed access before. So you had this extraordinary process of being the facilitator for them going back on country just as it was about to be destroyed. So that's like so many ironies in this. Mm. So trying to represent all of these interests could be quite challenging, I guess. But the art, I suppose, of being a heritage consultant is to make sure everyone complies with the law, whatever its failings, and to try and get good outcomes for everybody concerned. So you don't want to shut the mind down. You don't want to, you know, be the people responsible for uh, delaying work for days and costing hundreds of thousands of dollars, which means your evidence has to be good. Everything you do has to stand up in a court of law because mm. if they take you to court, it's going to stand on for whether I pick that little backed artifact made of silk red up and say, this is significant because of the story it can tell. So from that perspective, it's, um, I don't know, people might think a space archaeologist is someone who has their head in the clouds and isn't very connected to earth. Yeah. But this work is so practical. And I think from the perspective of what I do now, in space archaeology because I am doing research and work around future space mining. These are the kinds of, so I know, like I've been there on the ground with the engineers, mm. with everybody involved in those decision-making processes. And I know the kinds of things that are concerns and I know what works and I know how far to stretch these conversations, I guess. So this experience, even though it was absolutely unconnected to what I later started doing in space archaeology, has actually been invaluable. I know my way around an EIS. I know my way around drilling, although drilling is something that's going to be very different in space again. Mm. And I know how mining exploration works. So this has turned out to be just so important to some of my current research. You've been listening to the Space Junk podcast. If you'd like to find out more about space archaeology or anything else that was mentioned in this podcast, you can follow Alice on Twitter where she tweets as Dr. Space Junk. You can also find me there as Annie Handmer and I'm also on Instagram and TikTok now. And if you would like to contact me about anything else in this episode or ask a question, you can email the spacejunkpod at gmail.com.